Well, this week has been uh, something of a week. Uh, who here is watching the news this weekend? Anybody? I don't care what outlet, if you're watching CNN or Fox News. I don't care about that today. We're not talking about that this morning, okay? But you saw what happened, correct? Uh, this weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, in a neo-Nazi rally, a uh, white supremacy group. And of course, when they, whenever they gathered, we had a protest, which is protesting their protest, right? And so in this place, we had groups who were uh, showing up to kind of protest the hatred, uh, bigotry, and racism. And uh, unfortunately, we had an incident that took place where uh, had a white supremacist who took their vehicle and they drove through the counter-protest. And uh, as of this morning, one person uh, has died from that. I think 19 were injured. Who's seen the picture of that incident? Have you seen that? If you guys have, go ahead and put that up there. Yeah. Hmm. Let me just kind of leave that up here for a little bit this morning. Um, it's amazing what happens in people. Um, we're talking about the connectivity of life, the importance of, of you know, how the things that stick for us are the, are the things that we do in connection to others. And uh, last Sunday, Pastor Zach was kind of teaching us in that. But the one thing I've seen in life, which is really kind of saddening, is that the easiest way to connect people is to find a common enemy. The easiest way to unite people is fear. And so, you know, I I don't really care how you voted uh, this last year, but we all saw people flock to two sides of of an issue. And what drove both sides was fear and hate. And, of course, we saw what happened this weekend. We see what's happening in the news with, uh, with North Korea, with Russia. Fear, right? During the Cold War era, it was very easy for people to find the pinky, right? Come on. If you guys are old enough to remember that, nod your head. Everyone's like, I, I wasn't around back then. Yes, you were. (laughs) During the Great World Wars, um, we saw countries accomplish things that they had never done before in their entire history. We saw uh, these countries who were able to galvanize funds and resources and soldiers and, uh, and accomplish great feats of might and power. Uh, We've referred to the generation who fought in the Second World War. We call them the golden generation. We have seen things accomplished on this earth. Uh, I hate to even say it. At a certain extent, the greatest feats accomplished on this earth when it comes to building up nations, when it comes to amassing power, when it comes to unifying people, has been at times of war. And it hasn't been because we are trying to unite people around this, this action of love and acceptance or, you know, 
It's always been we have a common enemy. We have something that we fear. We must join forces in order to fight this thing we hate. Uh, if you guys watch the news again, the United States has been working with nations and countries and dictators who we have hated for a very long time. Governments and leaders, you know, we've tried to topple uh, here recently, but uh, we've chosen to work with them just momentarily because we have a common enemy. It's okay to team up as long as we're going against ISIS, right? And so all these things can be put aside as long as we have a common enemy, as long as we have a common fear, a common hate. It is a very powerful force that we have to be careful of. It's amazing how much easier it is for us to connect to people on things that we hate than to connect to people on things or people that we love. It's even amazing how easy it is to sit down with someone and to share with them things you love and how quickly, when that person doesn't share your love, all of a sudden, this discussion can turn to friction and you can begin to quickly begin to hate the thing that someone else loves if they don't love what you love. Some of the easiest ways for us to galvanize, to join each other, again, is the bond of hate and the bond of fear. Amen. Yeah. Now, um, what's interesting historically is that these movements of hate have always tried to hijack the cross. Hitler was one of the best preachers I've ever heard in my entire life. He was amazing. He used the Bible. He used scriptures. Uh, he found a way to utilize the scriptures to focus a people group on hating a separate people group. He found a way to use the cross as a symbol of hate. It's a weird thing historically. The South African apartheid is, is, is a, a moment in history we saw where spiritual leaders, these amazing men and women of God who did great feats for the kingdom, but yet found a way to justify the segregation of coloreds based on the scriptures. Here in the South, we had preachers and leaders of, of uh, denominations who stepped up to endorse the KKK in different groups, and they found proof in the scriptures for how we can, you know, we can justify hating these people. One of the weirdest things I've ever seen uh, is the way that some of these hate groups will march with these different symbols of hate the one symbol that they'll put right next to these symbols is the cross. Now, in the scriptures, one of the arguments they make is that these people of color, they believe it's, it's the mark of Cain. Do you guys remember the story of Cain his brother Abel? Yeah, we are super quiet this morning. Okay. Well, you're talking about racism. And you have that picture up there. So the argument has been that the mark of Cain, the mark of this, you know, the first man to murder, uh, the first man to take life, they argue that, that, 
the mark of Cain, because of course we assume Adam and Eve were white, right? With blue eyes, right? They're blonde with blue eyes, right? From Mesopotamia. That's okay. Those felt boards you had in kindergarten, right? In the classes. Here's Adam. He's blonde with blue eyes. Here's Eve. She's blonde as well, right? Is that okay? Anybody? Okay. (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) Since we know that they were white Caucasians, um, surely the mark of, of Cain... The mark that this man was a murderer and he was not to be touched because God was going to make him suffer had to be his skin color. We laugh, but it sold and it worked. And then when there was pushback on that, they said, well, okay, well, surely the sign of, of skin color comes from the mark of Ham. Because, see, the blessing was put on the other son. And so here's Ham, and he's kind of kicked out to wander the earth the same way Cain was. And surely that's where Islam comes from. And that's where all people of color come from, that people, because God hates them. And if God hates them, who can hate them? Come on now, speak up. If God hates them, who can hate them? We can't. Then they want to take it farther. They say, okay, well, surely everyone on the outside of the ark had dark skin. Because we all know that Noah had blonde hair. He was German. Happened on the other side of the globe, but he was German. We all know this. And surely everyone on the outside of the ark, everyone who God was just drowning, they were all the non-white people, because again, it's the mark of Cain. So everyone who is murdering, everyone who's from Ham and Cain, they're all the ones who God is washing away. Because he's wanted the world to be very, very bleached and white. And all this sounds ridiculous to us, doesn't it? But it sells. Now... Spiritually speaking, the mark of Cain is not skin color. The mark of Cain is hate. Now, what's interesting about hate is at the root of hate is self, self-preservation, meaning we are motivated to, to feel this way towards someone else, to, to hurt someone else, because at the root of it, I have to keep myself safe. I have to make sure that what I need is taken care of. At the root of hate is always the need for you to be taken care of. Self-preservation. What happens in all these situations with with hate is we, we have to find a way to justify. We have to find a way to where it's okay for me to treat this person, to feel this way about this person. It has to be okay. And so we either go to the Scriptures and we go to, you know, oh, well, see, right here. God hates them. I can hate them. Bam. Nailed it. But then we have this issue. Uh, we get this guy, this blonde guy again, Jesus. I guess God missed one when he was wiping everyone away at the ark. 
Forgot to get Jesus too. Come on, that's funny. <laughs> Missed his own son. Darn. He was supposed to come out blonde. Supposed to be German, not Jewish. If you don't laugh, I will. That's okay. And so the one he missed, he comes out, and of course he's teaching as he always does, and he's making everyone upset. And he has this statement. He says, you've been told in the Scriptures that this is the way that we treat our enemy, an eye for an eye. But I say to you, and when he says that, he's saying, from here on out, from this moment in history forward, here's what God says. Love your This creates a problem for us, right? Because if God loves these people, I'm going to have a little bit of an issue doing what towards them? Hating them. If you notice in the news lately, with the articles about ISIS, if you read them, there will always be a line in some way they're going to try to dehumanize, meaning they will call them they're animals. These animals would butcher and kill and rape. They're animals. They are less than human. Now, again, who here supports the acts of ISIS? Really? Nobody? <laughs> Just me. I think we can all agree that the, the actions of these, of these people is the, the contrary to the call of Christ. These things are horrific and awful. These things are to be judged, to be condemned. But you have to understand what happens. When you begin to take someone who's created in the image of God, someone who we are called to walk in what towards? And we begin to call them less than human. What are we doing in this process? If I can find a way to call this person an animal. You guys grew up in areas that were very racist. One of the things that they would call people of color is monkeys, right? They're apes, they're gorillas. Why? It's just... I can just knock this person down, if I can just make them what? Less than human. I can now justify the way that I want to treat them. And so this morning, the challenge for us is how do we react to this? How do we handle this? What do we do in this? Um, I'll be honest with you, this is a topic I try to avoid here. Uh, the one thing I love about grace is that we have people from all walks of life. But what happens with that is what? When we talk about these issues, we don't always agree. When I talk about politics in this church, things get heated. There were other churches in this area who I love who didn't have a very stressful time during the election because they didn't have any Democrats in their church. <laughs> Let's just be honest about it. I've got everything in this church. 
everything. So for us this morning, the question is, how do we respond? How do we react to this? And uh, the biggest challenge is this, is that we must react to this. Here's why. Most of you in this room are some of the most loving people I've ever met. But most of us in this room are still very distant from the issue of racism. We don't feel it every day. And so when this happens, what do you do? What do you say? And so even though this church is full of people who love and are compassionate and accepting, we just feel overwhelmed. Correct? And so what ends up happening for most of us is we just, we see it We care, but we just have to walk past because what can I do? If you guys have your Bibles, go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.26. Genesis um, has this great value for us. And Genesis is the first book where God kind of he lays down, if you would, this, this basic, I wouldn't say basic, he lays down the ground level of his, of his approach, his perspective, his love, his, his uh, view of us, of the world, of existence, of, of everything which he made. <laughs> the account of creation is the most powerful uh, uh, starting block for us because it shows us how the source of all life feels about life. Here in Genesis 1, uh, 26, he says this, And then God said, So let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the, the, the fish and the seas and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Pause right there. What does he not put us in place to rule over each other. Now, think about your history classes. What does this cause friction with? Everything. Amen. Everything, right? We were never created to rule over each other. This entire world was created that one source, one being would rule over everything, and there would be one king, correct? Is that the way we have today? Okay. So, if you're talking about about finances, correct? You have what? Less than 1% of the population on the earth controls the majority of the finances on the earth. Who's in control? If you talk about uh, politics and nations, there may be one to three nations on the earth which, for a period of history, have controlled the general movement of the rest of the earth. You talk about your... Let's make it fun. We talk about your home. 
Somebody rolls the home, correct? Man, if you want to think it's you, go ahead. It's okay. <laughs> it's me, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Everything in this world is created to where it has a pyramid effect. There is someone at the top of every single system, whether it's your business, whether it's a nation, whether it's a... By the way, I'm trying to change it at the church, okay? So we'll talk about that later. That's a whole other discussion. But every single system on this world is created where there is a person, a man, who is at the top. And that person is in control of ruling everyone underneath them. Now, what is the measure of the gospel? It is that we would believe that the Father, He raised His Son from, uh, from the grave, and then that we would all confess what? That there's one person at the top. There's one person at the top. And this person at the top is the only one who's worthy to be at the top. So the book of Revelation is the exact mirror the book ends, the Bible ends with the same mirror of the beginning. In the beginning, there's one who's over all. And then what happens at the end of the book in Revelation, the angels are, are weeping, and, and, and here's the apostle John weeping. And what they're saying is, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to make all things right again? And there's one who's worthy. And so the message of the gospel comes very, very pointed to every single individual. To enter into this new life, to this kingdom, you must accept a single. To enter into this kingdom, you have to accept this single what? King. And then everything about our lives from that moment forward is living under this what? Single king. Single rule. And everything about our lives is giving up the power to do what? To rule each other. In my marriage, I give up all the different devices in ways that I would manipulate and control my marriage. Okay, I guess no one's been married before. <laughs> you have ways. You all do. Ladies, your way is obvious. I got a laugh out of you guys. Finally. Amen. Going to have church this morning. Good. That we would be a kingdom and a people. And First Peter begins to outline that we are now a new nation, a new people, a new group that's been called out from the world. And in this group, we would live in such a way that they would call us peculiar. And so in every era, in each arena of my life now, I am learning to give up my control to control you. And the reason that I want to control you is so that I can take care of me. Correct? Now that sounds an awful lot like what we talked about with hate. Remember? Hate comes from the source. I need to make sure that I get mine. I hate those immigrants because they took my... See how this works here. We're not saying that you might not have a right to be frustrated because you might have lost your job, but do you see how quickly this injustice of you not having work begins to justify your ability to hate? 
And when you begin to hate, now you begin to want things for these people that you would never want on your own family. Do you see how quickly this thing turns on us? And of course, the worst thing about Matthew 5 there with Jesus is he says that we are to love our enemies as we love our See how tricky that moves. Would I ever want this immigrant to be booted out of the country to where he's separated from his wife and children? Would I want that for myself and my family? But it's okay because he took my job. He deserves it. Now, even right now, there's some of you in the room who are, you are creating a list of justification for the way you feel. Even right now. Well, here's my list. At the root of following Christ, it is this. Because I am trusting Jesus to take care of everything from this moment forward, I am now freed to love into my need to control you, to keep you away, to push you, to get mine, to protect mine, is now taken away from me because I am trusting my Lord to not only lead me, but now He is going to provide for me. And if I have everything I need in this new community, in this new person, I don't have a need anymore to control you, to fear you, to hate you. But the moment that I begin to see that God is not my source, my company is, my job I lost was, my president is, now I have a whole new justification for why I am able to justify treating you and seeing you a way that Jesus just told me that I could not. And it's very simple. It comes down to allegiance. Who are you f- truly aligned with? Are you truly aligned with Christ? Does he really have your allegiance? Is he truly your king or your Lord, or is he not? That's all that every decision comes down to in the way you interact with the people around you. In Genesis, it goes on in verse 27. And it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And then in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And he goes on to repeat that line. And again, in that line, he goes on to say to rule over all things except for each other. And the Apostle Paul even comes back and he, he kind of hits it further. And he explains that to fully submit to Christ in a very painful way is to let God be the one who avenges you, who protects you, takes care of the ways that you are mistreated. It's one of the hardest ways that we fully commit to Christ is to give up our right to protect ourselves the way that we have been taught to. Having fun yet? Now, what's interesting about this, you know, I've heard these arguments from the Old Testament, well, you know, you have to understand, you know, that it's the mark of Cain, it's racism, you know, that, you know, these people are really cursed, like they really are, and God hates them, and 
even if that were accurate, even if they were truly able to interpret the, the Scriptures accurately, it doesn't even matter, and here's why. When Jesus came, one of his titles was this. He was called by the Apostle Paul the second Adam. The second Adam. What I love about that was that he was not called the second Abel. He wasn't called the second Abraham. He wasn't called the second Moses or the second Noah. He was called the second Adam. And what this does is when Jesus is the one who comes back and he steps into the shoes of Adam, if you would, he go, it goes all the way back to the beginning, meaning God was redeeming all people, and he showed it in the way that Jesus represented mankind before it was divided. Do you see this? And it shows that Jesus wasn't coming back to redeem only the covenant with Abraham, meaning the Jews. He didn't come back to be the second Abraham, okay? He didn't come back to be the second uh, George Washington. How about that? He wasn't coming back to redeem the United States of America only, right? Would that, like, make sense to you? Oh, he came back as Abraham Lincoln, which that would be a powerful statement, wouldn't it? Let's just talk about some, some other day. Oh, that's right. He came back as a second Adam because Adam represents all of humanity. All of humanity. And it challenges us in this. When God himself chose to show the value of human flesh by putting it on himself, he was reaffirming what he said in Genesis. And he was saying, mankind bears the image of me. This has value. And you will treat it as such. Now, uh, Luke 4. What we see here in Luke 4, the, the passage that we read to start this morning, what we see in this passage is Jesus, it's actually the first sermon, if you would, uh, that we see from Jesus. It's the, in the passage you see that he stands to read the verse from, from uh, the prophet Isaiah, and then he sits down, and we have to understand is that uh, the practice in these temples was that what you would do is to teach and preach in these synagogues, you would not do it standing. What you would do is you'd actually read the passage, and then if, if, if you could picture me, I would read the passage, and then to preach to you, I would sit down on the stage. I would, I would sit down in front of you. It's an act of humility. It's an act of submission to the Scripture. And so what he's doing is he's giving his first sermon. And, and as we read this back, we understand what he's doing. He's describing the very nature of what God has called him to do. Now, with this passage, what's always kind of struck me about this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to, pro to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to pro proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I grew up in churches with ministers and, and people, it wasn't you guys, who loved God with all their heart, 
but they didn't fully understand this passage. And I was taught to read this with spiritual eyes. When I say spiritual eyes, I mean this. When we talked about the blind, what we were talking about was those who are spiritually blind. So it's like those who are in their sin and they can't find God. We're talking about the oppressed. We're talking about those who are addicted, those who had, who had these invisible issues. Uh, when we talked about, uh, well, i got to read it, the poor. We're talking about those who are spiritually poor only. What's interesting about this is it's Luke who mentions this passage the most clearly. And in Luke's gospel, every time he talks about poor, he talks about literal people with no money. What's funny about that is that Matthew, when Matthew says poor, he actually means spiritually poor. But we're not reading from the gospel of Matthew this morning. We are reading from the gospel of Luke. When Luke puts this into his gospel, he is telling you, Jesus is here for those who have no money, those who can't see anything, those who are in jail, and those who have some form of real oppression. They are held down in this world. And that is who Jesus is here with what? Favor. With good news. And we wonder why when we tell people, it's good news, Jesus came, and people with real problems go, okay, I can say a prayer, but how does that really change my life? Well, that's not really important. Here's why. Few of us in this room, few of us, know what it really means to be poor. Some of us do, I understand that but few of us do. And I know you don't want to hear it, but if you are in this country, you are already part of the upper 30% of the world. Just to be in this country, if, you have, if you've ever had, say, $5,000 in one year, you've already pushed yourself to the top of the globe as far as having money. In this world of rich people, when I say that, I mean in the U.S., you might not be rich, but when you go to a world where all they have is these cardboard shanties, you realize that you might be poor by these standards, but you don't know what it means to have nothing. I can say that my sin has jailed me up, and it really has, and there is a truth to that, and God has come for that, but I don't know what it's like to be in prison. My imagination tells me it's not good. TV shows say it's a bad place, right? Can you put that image back up there? I don't know what it's like to be oppressed. I don't know what it's like that people who would march, who would gather in thousands just to talk about how much they hate me, even though these people have never even met me. It's hard for me to, to fathom someone who would feel such a way about me that they would have no problem doing that to me or to my children because of the color of their skin. And so, when it says that he has come to set the oppressed 
free. What that means is that the message which we carry, it means something here. My message is not just about some kind of eternal salvation only. My message is about a king and a God who's coming back to make all things right again. A God who's coming back to judge. To judge things which were never to be on his earth ever. And he's going to remove it. And the question for me is, which side am I on? And if I am someone who's chosen to follow Christ, if I've taken Christ as my king, as the one I model my life after, then one of the major focuses of my life is to speak and to be with those who are oppressed and to tell them that God is going to free them and I'm going to be a part of it. It's a painful thing. But it's one of the things which we're called to do on this earth. Now, in this passage, I want to end with this this morning. The challenge we see in, a, in this passage from Isaiah is that we always assume that God is speaking to us as we are the one who are being oppressed. When you read a passage in the Bible, you always put your, yourself in the side or the image, the role of the person who's on, who's on the good side. Meaning, when God says, I've come here to free those who are oppressed, that means that those who are oppressing... Something's going to happen to them. Agreed. If you go back to Isaiah and you read about the Lord's favor, it's not just favor on everybody. It's favor on everyone who's down there. And everyone who's up here, he's going to turn the world upside down. And if you were someone who was the, the oppressed oar, you're not going to like what he does when he comes. The problem is, is for everyone who's on the top in this world... The, the good news shouldn't be good news to them. It should be, oh, crap. I could say other words. This isn't going to work out good for me unless I change. And so the challenge in Isaiah is this. Are you being oppressed or are you the one who's doing the oppressing. Now, you can be both. And the truth is, most of us are in different ways. When it comes to race, when it comes to racism in this country, it gets a little bit more obvious. Am I being oppressed? Well, I am getting a little darker. The odds are no. And so the question for me becomes, am I someone who's doing the oppressing? Directly, I might not be. But what in my life am I doing or am I allowing which is causing people made in the image of God to be put down? And if I am called to follow Christ, how can I be a part of change? That's the question for us this morning. Would you guys stand with me? I appreciate you guys' patience and 
I know it's a hard topic to talk about for even just 45 minutes. It's, it's a hard thing to swallow. Um, we won't talk about this every Sunday, but I, it takes maturity to be willing to let it burn a little bit, let it sting a little bit. And I, I know that if people in this room are so loving and caring. I'm telling you, I mean, the conversations I have with you guys, it always just kind of blows me away. I'm not saying I believe that uh, anyone in this room was, was out there picketing or driving that car. I know that. That's not the question. The question is, even if we lack, even if we... We can be guilty of inaction. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying anyone in this room who's actively out there being racist and oppressing uh, you know, people of color. What I'm saying is this, is that even if we'll fail to act, that is something we can be guilty of. I'm not telling you to go down there and, and to get signs and protest. Here's where it starts. It starts with us fully submitting to the Spirit of God and saying, how in any way have we been a part of this thing of evil? And how in, the fa- in my family, with my children, in my neighborhood, in my workplaces, can I change this? How can I represent the good news that I'm a follower of Christ and I don't behave this way? We are for you. How can I do that?